Welcome to the Oxford Psychiatry Podcast Series, brought to you today by me, Daniel Morn. I'm an advanced trainee here at Oxford Deanery. Today I have Michael Sharp with me. He is Professor of Psychological Medicine here at the Oxford University Department. He's recently moved back to Oxford from Edinburgh, and he's here to talk to me today about psychological medicine and about his recently completed randomised controlled trial into treating depression in those that suffer with cancer. So thank you for coming today, Professor Sharp. Pleasure. Uh, Maybe you could begin by uh, telling us what psychological medicine is. Well, it's very confusing, isn't it? Because people use different terms. What we're talking about here is the area of overlap between psychiatry and other bits of medicine, and indeed psychology. Um, The term that's often used for this is liaison psychiatry. Liaison means linking, so this was linking psychiatry and medicine. Psychological medicine's often preferred now because it isn't just linking psychiatry and medicine, it's a specialty of psychiatry which exists within medicine. So most departments in the UK are now referred to as departments of psychological medicine. Thanks. So what does the day-to-day work of a, a psychological medic look like? Well, you know, it varies a lot between hospitals. Uh, Some hospitals still have the now slightly old-fashioned liaison psychiatry type services where they would just visit people that seem conspicuously mentally ill and perhaps just deal with deliberate self-harm in the casualty department. Uh, The step up from that is to actually have a base in the hospital, a department of psychological medicine, and see a greater proportion of patients, perhaps with less conspicuous psychiatric problems, maybe including problems with patients such as uh, medically unexplained symptoms and severe adjustments to illness. And then there's an exciting step further where psychological medicine becomes fully integrated with the Department of Medicine and the psychiatrists work as the same team side by side with the physicians. And that's a type of service we've recently established in the John Radcliffe here in Oxford. Great. That sounds uh, like recent developments have really made an impact into integrating psychiatry back to to medicine, and we'll go on to talk about that in a a bit. But what was it that initially sparked your interest in psychological medicine? Well, I have to admit, I didn't do medicine as a first degree. I did my first degree in experimental psychology here in Oxford, and then I went on to do medicine in London and Cambridge, and I really enjoyed the medicine. I did medicine up to medical membership. But I, once I found I could put all the tubes in the right places and get most of the front door diagnoses right, I thought there's something missing here. And whether or not it was because I first studied psychology, I felt that there was a, a part of the person that I was not able to adequately engage with doing that rather technical quick fix medicine. I agonised for a long time whether to train in psychiatry and some of my senior consultant, senior consultant colleges, colleagues in medicine were less than encouraging but others were encouraging and I made the leap. It did seem like a leap at the time. So I moved back to Oxford and trained in psychiatry. Okay, that's, that's an interesting, interesting to hear your, your, your personal journey there. Um, I know you've spoken quite a bit about how liaison psychiatry is is key to the future of psychiatry and understanding the professional role of the psychiatrist. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, let's go back. And, of course, 
once upon a time there was no psychiatry. Uh, there were mm. just physicians uh, and and uh, and then latterly, of course, surgeons. Mm. Uh, and then if we go back a um, hundred to two hundred years. There were separate lunatic asylums, and these required doctors to staff them. And that was really the origins of psychiatry. And medicine moved on, ever more reductionist, ever more successful in finding mechanisms of disease, but sort of lost the whole patient bit of medicine, at least hospital medicine did. Mm. Psychiatry, isolated from those developments, if you like the fruits of its failure to find mechanisms of disease, led to it retaining some of those skills and perspective. So I think psychiatry has a lot to put back into medicine and help medicine regain a more whole person integrated view. And in fact, the, the failures of straightforward reductionist medicine are becoming ever more apparent with a complex aging population, with multimorbidity, with unexplained symptoms that cannot be addressed with simple mechanistic medicine. So it is becoming essential to have the skills of psychiatry mixed back in with general medicine. And that's becoming widely recognised. In a sense, uh, completing uh, the picture of a, a holistic treatment package for patients in the hospital. Yeah, one sometimes shies from the word holistic. It somehow sounds a little bit flaky, but I think the sense is there, a whole patient view. And uh, one of my favourite quotes from the great physician, William Osler, who was a Canadian physician who spent time here at Oxford, and wrote the main medical textbook in the world a little over 100 years ago, was that the good physician treats the disease but the great physician treats the patient who has the disease and I think that's the sentiment that was there in medicine that we need to bring back. A good place to move on that's, that's uh, an excellent uh, way to finish that bit so let's move on to talking about your trial your randomized controlled trial into treating depression in those that suffer with cancer. Maybe you could just begin by telling us um, what your reasons were for, for beginning that trial, for wanting to do that trial. Well, I've always had an interest in patients and doing things to help patients who have a combination of what we call medical and psychiatric illnesses. Of course, those very terms are slightly artificial and reflect the split we've just talked about. But one example would, of that would be, and an example I encountered in my time in medicine, was someone who had a severe condition such as cancer and also had depression. Right. And my experience and the literature show us that that depression is rarely diagnosed, and if it's diagnosed, it's rarely adequately treated. And I was very impressed by the suffering that unrelieved depression caused. And so... Uh, Whilst when I first moved to Edinburgh, I had the opportunity to start doing some work in relation to the cancer centre. And thereafter followed some more than 10 years of work developing and testing a better way of identifying and treating depression in patients attending a cancer centre. So could you tell us about your trial? and, and Yes, went about well there was two bits. The, the, the bit that isn't really part of the trial but is an essential underpinning is we have to know who is depressed. And the first problem there is in medicine is that depression is not well detected. Patients don't want to say, doctors don't want to ask. There can be a collusion of silence. Okay. And so we implemented a very large-scale 
screening system and depression outpatient in, in cancer outpatients for depression, which enabled us to identify which patients attending the clinic were depressed. And it's about 10% of cancer outpatients. Then we wanted to be able to, there's no point screening for patients unless you have a treatment. So we want to be able to implement an effective treatment. And here I was very influenced by work in the United States and something called collaborative care, which is actually taking the best shot we have of treatments and putting them together in a system that optimizes the patient's care. So right. in some ways, there's nothing terribly novel about this. So what do we know works for depression, antidepressants, some talking treatments like cognitive behavior therapy and our case mm. problem solving, and you need to get the patient to want to take these and cooperate with it and follow them up to make sure they're properly delivered. It sounds very simple. Uh, so we constructed essentially common sense treatment based on those ingredients. So in a sense, bringing the, the evidence-based good quality care yeah. to the cold face, to the patients, rather yeah. than uh, making them look for it and often not, not finding it themselves. So the thing that uh, uh, can't be underestimated here is I think if someone didn't know, they'd assume, well, surely the GPs will deliver this treatment or mm. surely if they're going to a specialist cancer centre, they'll get depression treated. Uh, we studied, um, identified 100 consecutive patients with depression and less than 10% were getting any useful treatment. Mm -hmm. So the problem isn't that we have to discover a whole new treatment for depression. The problem is we have to discover and develop and create a system to make sure the patients get the treatments that we already have, which incidentally is an issue in a lot of other areas of medicine, mm. but I digress. And what were the reactions of those in, in cancer services, the, the professionals working in that cancer services, to this trial? And were they pleased for the option of you sort of being there and screening your, their patients? What was their, their response to, to the trial? Um, well, I think in general they were very happy for this to go on. Um, I think that, of course, like any group of doctors, some are wildly enthusiastic and some are more sceptical. I think oncologists have a very hard job dealing with often incurable illness, certainly giving often distressing treatments. And most of them, I think, are aware that a lot of their patients are depressed. And most of them feel they should be doing something about it, but feel it's just too much for them to manage on top of everything else. They lack the skills, they lack the time. So to have someone come in and set up a system to address this problem uh, is something that, that certainly most of them welcomed. Okay, so it's, um, it's good to see that they're... They, they realised there's a need and, and they were sort of welcoming you in, in, into the trial. I, I guess it's um, sometimes that uh, so the, the, the age-old split of, of, of psychiatrists and medics, we can, there, there can sometimes be some, some teething problems well, in, in uh, the sort of getting indeed. in. You're absolutely right, and I made it sound far too easy, which of course it isn't. And I should say that uh, we did work in the same cancer centre for some 15 years, right. and colleagues had worked there previously and I think that's generally the experience that the default is because of this historical split we keep coming back to yeah. physicians often see psychiatry as other as alien and don't really know what to make of it and maybe have some worrying fantasies about it and mm. like most worrying fantasies they're best addressed by personal contact mm. with 
a normal psychiatrist and even better seeing as some of their patients benefit from their treatments mm. and I think this applies to most of this area of linking psychiatry and medicine right. it just needs some time some exposure and being there together seeing the same patients together and those problems pretty much disappear mm. so let's press on and talk about yeah. your results yeah you might not have all the figures to hand but um... well I can give you certainly give you the broad brush figures and I should say this paper isn't actually published yet so I'm going to be a little bit uh, broad brush. So we recruited to this trial 500 patients attending cancer outpatient clinics who all had depression of a severity called major depression. Uh, In the end there was a majority of women and a majority of, of, of women with breast cancer and that's we didn't seek to re- recruit predominantly those kind of patients, but that's who you pick up if you screen, and that's another story. And those patients were randomised to either have their GP told they had depression, they were told they had depression, uh, their oncologist was told they had depression, and they were all encouraged to get on and do something about it. So that was one arm. That was, if you like, optimised or informed usual care. So you might think that should do the job, really. So we set ourselves quite a hard task of seeing if we could do better than that. Mm. And the other arm got that, plus the patient saw a nurse for an average of about eight occasions. That nurse was trained and followed a treatment manual, delivering education about depression, helping the patient become active, helping the patient do problem-solving their difficulties, and ensuring adherence to antidepressants. That nurse was closely supervised by a psychiatrist who uh, got given information about the progress of the patient's depression and about their treatment and made adjustments. The general practitioners prescribed the antidepressants, psychiatrists didn't. So we communicated with the GP and saying, well, we'd recommend an increase in antidepressants or a change, for example. So really, you might say we're comparing usual care, encouraging people to do a bit better, with adding something in to what's essentially the same kind of thing. So you might say, well, you wouldn't expect to make much of a difference with this. We got results which were so surprising. uh, If we hadn't had about three statisticians working on the trial, I would have have thought they'd made a mistake. Um, At six months after coming into the trial, the patients who had that very informed usual care Uh, the percentage you had a really useful improvement in their depression, a 50% drop in score, was only, was less than 20%. So that means if you go to a cancer centre now, you're screened for depression, everyone's told you have depression, the patient's told they have depression, get treatment, you can expect six months later, less than 20% will be usefully better. Mm. Well, you said, well, maybe depression with cancer is very difficult to treat. So the other arm, the arm where we put in this additional treatment at six months, more than 60% were, were, had that improvement. So we actually had an absolute 45% difference between the groups at six months. We measured lots of secondary outcomes, the patient satisfaction with their care, anxiety, pain, fatigue, patient-rated quality of life, and so on. And every single one was statistically significant. And those differences were all maintained at the 12-month follow-up. That's 12 months is as far as we went, so I can't say after 12 months. So this is uh, a very striking result. It's the most striking trial result I've had. 
and it really is quite surprising because we didn't do anything that special. What we did is made sure patients get the treatments that we know work and did that in a very systematic, carefully controlled way. And really, it's rather an indictment of what usual care is. Yes. Because yes. all those treatments were available, potentially, to people in usual care. But the lack of patient education, the lack of proactive monitoring, the lack of ensuring the treatments were delivered and changed where necessary means you get very poor outcomes. The results, in a sense, are a challenge, actually, to, to us as psychiatrists to, to actually go to these places where there, there are the, this, this cohort of patients with unrecognised mental illness to actually to not wait for them to come to us, but to go and find them in these general medical settings. Yeah, I think there are two challenges. One is, I, you know, understandably, because psychiatrists can't see everybody with psychiatric illness, but the management of depression, even major depression, has largely been given up to primary care. And the reality is, at least for patients with comorbid physical illness, primary care ain't that good at it. Right. And the second thing, you're right, uh, these are people who normally, most of whom wouldn't come near us at a mental health service, so you, you need to go and find them. But the thing is, if you use this kind of model where most of the treatment's given by a nurse and prescribed by the GP, the amount of specialist psychiatrist time needed is quite small. So you couldn't plausibly say all those 250 patients had to be seen by a consultant mm-hmm. psychiatrist. That wouldn't make any sense. But actually having a system where the psychiatrist just provides supervision means it becomes cost effective. And indeed, we know from the analysis that this was a cost effective treatment costing less than £10,000 a quali, which is a long way under the kind of threshold that NICE would say is too expensive. Right. And another interesting aspect of your trial, I know I mentioned it to you before, was that you chose to use uh, the the cancer specialist nurses mm. for the delivery of yeah. uh, of some of the talking therapy, which I thought was a really interesting uh, method that you used to really get fully integrated into that cancer service. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I think one can always be more in, integrated, but certainly we, we, we this the, the the thought was, and this was based on what patients told us that they wanted to say, see someone who understood depression, but they also wanted to see someone who understood cancer and cancer treatments. And they were not comfortable seeing just a mental health person who had no idea what their cancer treatments and cancer mm. experience had been. Mm. So they felt more comfortable with someone who had both. That did mean we had to provide quite intensive training for the cancer nurses, um, but the proof of the pudding's in eating, uh, and it worked. Well, thank you very much for giving us uh, that outline of your trial. And so we look forward to um, reading about that in more detail um, in, in when it comes out in press. I was just wondering before we finish, Professor Sharp, whether you could uh, or whether you have any words for some of the listeners out there who might be contemplating a career in psychological medicine. Well, yes, I, I as you know, my particular thing is to enhance the position and the contribution of psychiatry in relation to the rest of medicine. And I think there's two main ways that this is working at the minute. Now, one way is to go into biology research, that the neuroscience of psychiatry is linking with neurology and basic neuroscience and is bringing psychiatry back into medicine in the biological level. Right. And a lot of people are attracted to that, and it's important work. 
at the clinical level, there is now very considerable interest with multiple government reports recommending integration at a clinical level. So integrating psychiatric care with medical care is what psychological medicine is all about. And I think those two strands are going to be the things that keep psychiatry alive and integrated with the rest of medicine. And if you're a young a medical student or a, a young doctor who's interested in holistic or whole patient medicine, psychological medicine might well be the thing for you. Thank you, Professor Sharma. It's been a, actually quite an inspiring uh, interview talking to you about your, your opinions, your views and, and your, your, your striking results from that trial. So thank you very much for being here today. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Please do listen to more podcasts of the Oxford University Psychiatry podcast series. Thank you. Thank you.